The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Bloomberg's Balance of Power. We've got a lot to talk about here with breaking news you heard earlier on Bloomberg. The ruling came down on immunity for President Trump here. The former president can be prosecuted for trying to overturn the 2020 election, according to a federal appeals court. This is a three-judge panel, a 57-page ruling. This would then, of course, Donald Trump appealing this goes to a wider appeals court and then likely Supreme Court, the statement from the Trump campaign. Prosecuting a president for official acts violates the Constitution and threatens the bedrock of our republic. They write President Trump respectfully disagrees with the D.C. Circuit's decision and will appeal it in order to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. And so the lines are drawn. Let's bring in Eric Larson, Bloomberg's legal reporter, with us from World Headquarters in New York. Eric, it's good to see you. We didn't know exactly when we would get this ruling, but here we have it. What does it mean for the timing of this trial? Of course, the special counsel, Jack Smith, wanted to bring this in March. It fell off the calendar what does it mean going forward? Right. Well, I, I, as you said, we've been waiting for this decision from the appeals court for a little while. I think folks were expecting it to come sooner. Uh, the judge uh, in the case uh, canceled the March 4th hearing. This, or sorry, the trial was supposed to start March 4th. It was potentially going to last several months. Um, so it was not a small decision for this judge to, to cancel that date. It hasn't yet been rescheduled. Um, it's likely that that decision was just a result of this, this appeals court decision on immunity taking so long. So we'll see what happens uh, in the lower court. We'll see what Trump does next. He could ask the Supreme Court to review this, or he could also, as you mentioned, seek a, a review from a larger panel of appeals court uh, justices, a so-called en banc review. Of course, those are rarely granted and, and rarely mm. succeed. Uh, but for now, um, the the court could not have been more clear that it disagrees with uh, Trump's arguments, some of which were outlined in that statement you just read out. Um, mm-hmm. This this three judge panel, two judges appointed by Biden, one by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, all agreeing that uh, they're, that they're. Uh, that a pre- former president can be charged with crimes related to their conduct in office, um, and that particularly around this attempt to overturn the 2020 election, they said that that is uh, something that must absolutely be be checked by the courts if it's true. If the court had ruled in the other direction, would this trial, would this case be dead? Well, um, it, it would definitely have uh, put it on the, on the back foot. We, the special counsel, Jack Smith, who brought this case, as well as the other federal case over Trump's handling of classified records in Florida federal court, um, that Jack Smith could have appealed if it had been overturned. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, we, we would have either way seen an appeal, I, I would imagine. Uh, but once this does get uh, to the Supreme Court, whether when a petition is, is filed uh, to hear this, 
Um, the Supreme Court could either just say, no, we're actually not interested, we're not going to hear this, in which case this decision today would stand and the trial would go ahead. If they do, if the Supreme Court were to take it up, then of course we would potentially have additional arguments at the Supreme Court and then another wait for another historic decision, which of course could delay this even, even further. The Supreme Court would have all the time it wanted to take, right? That, that's right, although um, I, I would think in a case like this, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they expedited it, just given the importance of the question. Yeah. Um, here, it's not just any criminal case here against a former president. It's a, it's a case related to an, an alleged attempt to illegally overturn an election and stay in office despite losing. Yeah. So it's uh, something that the court may, may see, uh, to think would need a resolution before the next election. Eric, does this impact the case in Georgia, or is that different because it's uh, on the state level? Yeah, it's uh, the latter there. It, it doesn't impact the case uh, in Georgia, which, of course, also relates to Trump's um, alleged effort to conspire to overturn the election. That filed under um, state law in Georgia, racketeering violations. Um, various defendants in that case, including Trump, are, are trying to have that case thrown out. Um, no trial has been set yet in that case, notably. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it seems to be a bit further out. Well, this is uh, really fascinating here. Uh, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, Eric, everything is up in the air right now. And Donald Trump's attempts to delay, delay, delay as a strategy may have actually uh, been strengthened by this ruling today. We could be in a situation where a trial is underway during the presidential, uh, the party's nominating convention, or not at all before the election. Is that right? Sure. I mean, it's it, this is all just so unprecedented. It's uh, really unclear what uh, the judge, uh, the trial judge might, might do here. Um, obviously, uh, there's an interest, a federal interest um, in speedy trials and having um, trials happen sooner rather than later. That's that's true in all courts. Um, of course, they're also going to weigh against Trump's um, rights uh, as, as a candidate as this continues to push closer and closer to the election. Uh, but of course, uh, th- all this whole case probably could have moved along, you know, faster. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it was delayed repeatedly, um, you know, by the defendant in various uh, legal maneuvers, which are his right to do. But the delay, uh, the fact that this might be coming up closer to the election is. Um, it's not really they claim it's by design uh trump's defense is is claimed yes, that this right. is election yeah. interference mm-hmm. um but uh, uh i think that a lot of the timing and the delays are actually a result of of the defense arguments here great to have eric larson i appreciate it eric bloomberg legal reporter as we add a voice of experience in nick ackerman of course uh founder of the law office of nick ackerman but also former assistant U.S. attorney, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor. Uh, Mr. Ackerman, it's great to see you. Welcome back. Uh, We've talked about the virtues of this argument a couple of times, but this must really hit close to home uh, with you having uh, your experience on the Watergate case. Prosecuting a president, we see, for official acts violates the Constitution and threatens the bedrock of our republic, according to Donald Trump's spokesperson. What say you? Well, first of all, he's not being prosecuted for official acts. Uh, He's being prosecuted for criminal acts that he did outside of his duties as president of the United States. So that's the first fallacy with his argument. Um, No one has ever understood a president to be above the law, that a president can willy-nilly break the law at his pleasure. 
Uh, that was never the law. We never assumed that in Watergate. Uh, in fact, we assumed just the opposite. Uh, and we're investigating Richard Nixon for all kinds of violations, including obstruction of justice and income tax violations. Uh, the only reason he was not prosecuted in the end uh, was because he was pardoned by President Trump. Other than that, we wouldn't be talking about this issue today. It would have been done and, and completed years ago. Mm-hmm. President Ford, of course, uh, with the pardon, right? Is this something that you considered during uh, the Watergate era as a potential argument? Are you surprised Richard Nixon didn't make it? Uh, this was never raised during the Watergate era. No one ever had the audacity to say that the president was immune from obstructing justice and committing crimes. That just never came across our radar. Huh. That says a lot. So we have a 57-page opinion here, unanimous three judges. If this indeed goes to the wider appellate court, which we expect, what happens? Well, I think what's going to happen is he's probably going to appeal directly to the Supreme Court in order to not have this case go back to the district court. I think the Supreme Court is not going to take it. Uh, They've already got a full plate with this 14th Amendment issue. Uh, I think they would prefer not to be involved in this particular case. Don't forget, uh, if Donald Trump is convicted in the D.C. case, he then will have the right to appeal the entire conviction uh, to the Supreme Court and raise this issue at a later point. So I think that is more likely what is going to happen. Uh, The real ramifications here are that the case in D.C. is going to be put off a little bit yet, probably not till, uh, well, say, April or May. And what's going to happen instead is that the case, criminal case pending in Manhattan is going to go ahead first. So I think what we're looking at is that the first case that Donald Trump is going to have to defend himself on criminal matters is going to be in New York County uh, starting the end of March. This is the Stormy Daniels case, which is pretty remarkable to think. Like that that would be uh, the first to kick off here. But I just want to get a 30,000-foot view. Uh, Say again? Yeah, not really. No, no, this case is just as important as any of the others. First of all, it's not just Stormy Daniels. What this case has to do with is Donald Trump defrauding the U.S. voting public in 2016. What he did was he engaged in a scheme that involved not just himself, but David Pecker at the National Enquirer, Uh, and others, including his own attorney, to basically keep information relating to uh, sexual uh, affairs that he had with various women from the voting public. Don't forget, at the point in time where he was doing this, uh, there had already been the Access Hollywood tape that came out. There were 20-some-odd women that had come out saying that he had abused them at some point. Um, And this situation if it had been released prior to the election, probably would have resulted in Hillary Clinton being elected. So what you really have here is Donald Trump having essentially uh, hoodwinked the voters in 2016 by keeping this information from the voting public, which is what is charged in the Manhattan indictment, uh, and thereby getting himself elected. So this is a pretty uh, significant case, not to mention the fact that the proof here is pretty overwhelming. 
It's not just his former attorney, Michael Cohen, who's testifying, but it's yeah. also David Decker, who is then the owner of the National Enquirer, who's yes. also going to testify. So you've got two main accomplice witnesses that are going to corroborate each other. You've got a tape recording between Donald Trump and Michael Cohen, where they discuss the payment to another one of the women, um, Karen McDougal, and how they got the money to her and the involvement of Mr. <laughs> Pecker. And then you've got a whole bunch of other witnesses who are going to corroborate various little aspects of this whole scheme. So the bottom line is, I think this is an almost certain conviction. It's a quick trial. It's no more than three weeks. And he's going to be convicted and then go down to D.C. for his second conviction. That's what I think is going to happen. Well, just that was incredible to listen to, uh, Nick Ackerman, because so many folks, including, by the way, many Democrats, have spent a lot of time trying to question the legitimacy of that case and how it reflects on the others. We hear about indictment fatigue, that Alvin Bragg bit off more than he could chew, that we should have allowed the special counsel to move forward. You see all of these, it sounds like, as equally important. Absolutely. The problem is people have not read the indictment. All you have to do is read the statement of facts. What I just said is pretty much laid out there. And for some reason, the press, the public, they've forgotten it. They haven't read it. Uh, but yep. once you dig into it, this is a very significant case. In fact, what it shows at the end of the day is he cheated his way into the presidency. And then after he lost the election, he tried to cheat his way to stay in the presidency. That's what these cases are all about with respect to the D.C. case and the Georgia case. Now, of course, the D.C. the Florida case for the classified documents is a completely different situation where he essentially stole classified information and obstructed mm -hmm. the government obtaining those documents back. Nick, I only have a minute. If I'm understanding you correctly, and the question I wanted to ask you, the broad view here, while this made this ruling today may delay the start of Jack Smith's trial, in the end, it strengthens Jack Smith's hand. No question. It absolutely does. It's just going to mean that one trial is going to go before another trial. And you're going to start with March with the Manhattan DA's office. Then you're going to go to D.C. Then you're going to go to either Florida or Atlanta for the um, RICO case. So these are all going to kind of go in succession. They could have never all gone at the same time for the simple reason that a defendant can only be in one courtroom at one time. Nick Ackerman, a great pleasure. We appreciate your jumping on this story for us with little notice. This broke just a couple of hours ago. Former assistant special Watergate prosecutor, former assistant U.S. attorney Nick Ackerman. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. If you're just joining us, though, it has been quite a day in Washington here with breaking news from the 
a D.C. Circuit Court. We were waiting for this in the immunity case uh, for Donald Trump. Unanimous ruling, three judges on the appeals court ruling that Donald Trump can, can be prosecuted. In other words, not immune uh, for trying to overturn the 2020 election. And Donald Trump, shocker, is going to appeal it. Prosecuting a president for official acts, says the campaign, violates the Constitution, threatens the bedrock of our republic. President Trump respectfully disagrees with the D.C. Circuit Court's decision and will appeal it in order to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. This is where we begin with our panel. Glad to say Rick and Jeannie are with us on an important day here in Washington history. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Jeannie, your thoughts on Stormy Daniels being the first case that we hear, because that is likely what's going to happen, delaying Jack Smith's case, likely until what appears to be summertime, if not fall. What does it mean for the campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think this is more to the benefit of the campaign than not. They would rather have cases that, as you've been discussing, meant some people at least feel should not have gone forward. So they'd rather have these cases. I don't want to describe it at all as frivolous because it is not. But in the views of some people, it is a political prosecution. And that is clearly not the case when it comes to Jack Smith or documents. So Mm -hmm. I think that works to their advantage. But boy, this decision out of the appellate court today, a victory for the rule of law He is going to appeal it, but I can't imagine a world in which any Supreme Court, as conservative as they are, says that any president has absolute immunity. That is um, a violation of separation of powers of the likes of which our democracy Mm. has never even imagined. Talk about frivolous. That is frivolous delay tactic. He may get the delay, but ultimately he won't get the win on this. Well, so there it is. Rick, the impact on the Trump campaign, near-term benefit, long-term liability? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, near-term benefit. Uh, You know, Hmm. I think the idea of, like, raising money off of these, uh, I think raising money up, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you, Rick. Go ahead. Okay. Raising money off of these uh, uh, court cases, uh, you know, I, I don't think it has the power that it once did early on in the process. I mean, uh, voters in all the polls that I've seen are sort of accepting this as a process question now. And and the trigger there in the process is if he's convicted, they don't seem to be that influenced by the process going on until then. So the question is, when does this case ultimately break through all these debates, all these barriers uh, and gets, get on the docket so that it can actually be tried? As you talked about earlier in your program, the amazing part of a presidential campaign that I don't think anybody ever contemplated is having a criminal trial ongoing in the middle of a you know presidential campaign, um, you know, with one of the presidential contestants. So uh, I, I think it's hard to say whether or not this is actually going to inure his benefit or not. Well, he's going to have a lot of time uh, in court. Jeannie, whether he can turn that into good optics or not, I mean, I can't really imagine it. But I know that A lot of people have spent time trying to delegitimize Alvin Bragg's case. But to Rick's point, how corrosive is it going to be to see Stormy Daniels up on the the stand, to see uh, David Pecker up on the stand telling these stories? It will be corrosive. And the problem for Donald Trump here has never been a problem in the primary season. It is a problem in the general election. So whether it's the Stormy Daniels case, Jack Smith, the documents, the reality is if this is an election which is going to be fought out in the middle in these six, seven battleground states, 
independence moderates are going to have a very hard time, as the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll showed, voting for somebody who has been convicted of a crime. I mean, that is a huge, huge problem. You know, he can spin all he wants. He can raise money. But we still, hopefully, Joe Matthew, live in a world in which the conviction by, of a felony by our court system is seen as something that is not attractive to people as they look to vote for a president. So it's not to say that they may love the alternative in Joe Biden so much, yeah. but gosh, it's going to be hard to choose somebody who's been convicted or in the midst of such tawdry details. And so I don't think they move the base. The base will stay with him, but certainly the independents and moderates are going to have second thoughts when it comes mm -hmm. to this, all of these trials, not just the one involving Stormy Daniels. Rick, I know it's serious when Jeannie uses my full name, uh, and I'm going to probably I'll, I'll get angry tweets for this. Um, but I have to ask with a headline like this and what I'm hearing you both say, did Joe Biden just win the election? No, I mean, he's got a long way to go, and he's obviously coming from behind in all our targeted states that we've been polling at Bloomberg. So uh, it's 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 also predicated on his success and part of his success is to have an ever-improving uh, economy that voters actually feel like they're getting uh, a, a better economy. And he's still got to prove that he can do that. Although I would say that's one of the uh, more likely scenarios. But like he's got a major failure on his hands today. Uh, he's supposed to be addressing the nation an hour ago, talking about why he needs border security legislation mm -hmm. to tighten up a border that voters don't think he's doing a good job with. And if he isn't able to make the case that he can actually handle this border over the next four years, forget the fact that he's had an abject failure over the last two years, then he's still going to have a problem. I mean, uh, uh, elections are always about a choice and it's between two people as imperfect as they are, you know, and, and, and all the baggage that they both carry sooner or later, the voters are going to have to vote. And right now they seem dead, even split. That's remarkable. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano uh, with Crack Analysis here. This uh, ruling is fresh. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Coming here today, we've been discussing our anticipation there, Kaylee. The question was uh, where this court would come down and where we go from here. Of course, the campaign is going to appeal this. Yep. But Jack Smith's premise, his case against the former president, is still alive. It is. Of course, the decision of this appeals court today is held for six days until February 12th. The mm -hmm. former president and his legal team have until that day to decide whether or not to appeal it to the Supreme Court. And then if the Supreme Court ultimately decides to hear it, decides to rule, that's when we may have a better understanding of the actual yeah. timeline when this may indeed go to trial. Because remember, it was supposed to be March 4th, and Judge Chutkin already last week said, okay, well, that's not going to happen because we right. didn't have an immunity decision. Amazing. 
so this is where we begin with Michael Zeldin, I'm glad to say, is with us, the former federal prosecutor, former special counsel uh, to Robert Mueller while at the DOJ. Michael, it's good to see you. Um, here we are. We finally have a ruling. Nick Ackerman, the former Watergate prosecutor, was with us last hour. Uh, he suggests this, in fact, strengthens uh, Jack Smith's hand and will only delay the trial into summer or fall. What do you think? Well, it's unknowable. However, I think that there is a reasonable opportunity here for the Supreme Court to decline to take cert in this case. You have Judge Chutkin, the trial judge, issuing, issuing a very comprehensive ruling why the immunity argument that Trump put forth holds no water. This three-judge bipartisan appointed panel unanimously agrees with Chutkin and says that the former president is just like any other citizen once he is a former president. So you have four distinguished jurists saying this is not a close case. Why the Supreme Court would feel the need to intervene at all is, in my mind, questionable. They are risking always the view that they are putting their political fingers on scales. This is an opportunity for them to say, you know what, it's not a close case. We don't need to take cert. And this case can go forward to trial uh, when the trial judge sets it down if, however, they say, you know what, it's a case of first impression and we need to hear it, then if you look at the timeline that took in the appellate court, this could be done by the end of April, allowing for a trial in mid-May, I think, without any due process implications for the former president. Okay, but how could the former president and his team potentially change that timeline, knowing that he has a tendency to always want to delay, what options does he really have here to do so? Well, the, the this Court of Appeals said they will not stay this ruling pending his request to the Court of Appeals in Banc, the total court, to hear it. So that doesn't stay the trial. It will only be stayed until February 12th to allow him the time to seek consideration by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says yes, then they set it down for a briefing sometime later in the month of February. They set it for argument in the early part or the mid part of March. They issued the decision within 30 days, as this Court of Appeals did. Then we're in May. So he really doesn't have a lot of options, it seems to me, unless the Supreme Court were to take this case and say, we're not going to do it on an expedited basis and not make a decision until June, end of June, their normal calendar, then Ackerman may be right that we're looking at a fall trial but I'd be surprised if we have to wait that long. In that world, we could have a scenario in which, well, number one, if I guess if it's late summer, it coincides with the Republican convention. That's something to consider. The president ping-ponging back and forth. Uh, but, but if it's fall, Michael Zeldin, could we be in a situation where the trial is underway but not resolved when people vote? Well, yes because of early voting, it may well be that there are people who can vote while this trial is in full swing. Uh, it might mean that people decide to hold off on early voting until there is a resolution. But yeah, it's theoretically possible that that could be the case. And it seems to me that those people who think that they don't need to hear the outcome of a criminal trial against the former president in deciding whether to vote for or against him, that's their prerogative. But it shouldn't define yeah. what the DOJ can and should do in a case like this. Can you imagine that? Yeah. That would be something. 
It, indeed it would. And I wonder if we can take you actually inside the opinion, Michael. The the three judges on this panel essentially said, ultimately, this comes down to a question of checks and balances. And if the argument that President Trump were making, former President Trump were making were true, that would mean that the judicial system can't check uh, a, a president, that the legislative uh, branch can't do it either. Even the executive wouldn't have the power to bring charges. I just wonder what you make of the actual arguments that the judges were making here and how bulletproof they would be when taken to a Supreme Court, a very originalist court, has a conservative supermajority. Three three justices uh, were appointed by former President Trump himself. Are there holes that could be poked here? Not, I don't think, in this separation of powers argument. As you articulated from the very beginning, Marbury versus Madison, which gave the courts authority to look over the actions of others, this principle has allowed for judicial review. This notion of this unitary executive that has carte blanche to do what the executive wants without judicial review, I think has been rejected by this court and will continue to be rejected by this court. The other argument that this will open up a Pandora's box for future presidents who will now be afraid to act because of the possibility of criminal liability once they leave office. This court has resoundingly said that is too hypothetical. That is not something that can factor into this. What we have here is a president who is under, former president who is under indictment. And what the imperative of our society is that that person be held criminally accountable and not have that accountability be delayed for some theoretical, hypothetical that Trump tries to pose, um, tries tried to pose before the Court of Appeals. So I think he loses on all of the fundamental arguments that he made to the Court of Appeals. And I think it should be pretty cut and dried for the Supreme Court to say, you know what, we don't need to resolve this. This is this is black letter analysis and and get on with the trial. All right, Michael Zeldin, we always appreciate your insight and expertise on the many legal matters uh, we are dealing with when it comes to the former president. Michael Zeldin, of course, the former federal prosecutor and former special counsel to Robert Mueller while at the DOJ. We want to turn now to the halls of Congress. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Republican Congressman from Georgia, Buddy Carter. And Congressman, we have much to discuss with you when it comes to a border uh, deal that may not actually reached the House floor for you to vote up or down on it, and as well as the impeachment of the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. But first, if we could begin with you with the conversation we were just having with Michael Zeldin, this idea that former President Trump, despite his arguments to the contrary, per this appeals court in Washington, has decided he is not immune from prosecution as a former president. Did the court make the right call here? Well, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I have to tell you, I disagree with this, and I don't think it's the right call. However, it's obvious that the president's going to ask the Supreme Court to uh, to intercede on this and make a decision, and and from that, um, you know, that's why we we have three separate uh, branches of government. And that's what the judicial branch is to make these kind of decisions. It doesn't make you question your recent endorsement, though, of the former president, Congressman. No, not at all. Listen, this president, President Trump, can do so much better of a job than President Biden has done. I mean, we, you know, if you look at the chaos, if you look at the at the southern border, if you look at the economy and, and people are struggling. I know in my district when I'm going home, those are the two things that they're yeah. asking me about. They're asking me about the economy and they're asking me about that border. They want to see real change. We're not seeing change here with the Biden administration. We need President Trump. But back Congressman. 
let's talk about the southern border, because do you not, as a member of the House, have right now an opportunity to actually do something about it, to see changes to asylum and parole realized for changes that we have seen hard to find in decades now essentially presented to you? And the House says that they don't want it. Can you help explain that thinking? Well, first of all, that bill, as you so accurately have said, is dead on arrival. And there's a good reason for it. Look, we sent them H.R. 2. H.R. 2 is a great bill that addresses the situation. But let's keep in mind that this president has the authority to, to take care of what's going on at the border. This is something he created, and he is not taking care of it by executive action. If he were to put back the Remain in Mexico policy, if he were to complete the construction of the wall, all of these things that he can do, he can correct this without us having to do anything here in Congress. Now, yeah, we'd like to see some of these issues resolved that have been ongoing. And that is something that we're going to be working on, but not with this current bill. Let me ask you, how many laws do we have on the book where after a certain number of people violate that law, then we're going to start prosecuting people? That makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you just said a lot there, uh, Congressman, and I'm just I'm, I'm sort of curious by this change in politics, as Mitch McConnell himself put it, since Iowa, because it does seem that Donald Trump's frontrunner status now has changed the mood music here in Washington, D.C. Some would suggest this bill actually could have passed uh, with Republican support if it had happened toward the end of last year. But you're going to need Democrats for anything that that passes Congress, right? I realize you'd like to see the president act, but if there's a legislative answer to this, it's going to have to involve Democrats and therefore some level of compromise, no? Obviously, with the tight uh, majority that we have in the House, with the fact that the Senate is under Democratic majority and we have a Democrat in the White House, yes, it's going to take bipartisan work. And, and look, I'm not opposed to that. I've checked my record. You'll see that I've legislated and governed in a bipartisan fashion. I know how to do that, and I'm willing to do that. However, this bill that they are sending over, this border bill, is not what my constituents want. It's not what's going to be best for this country. Can you just help explain, though, how not having anything whatsoever, no changes, is better than the current status quo? When you talk about how for your constituents, the border is so is so top of mind. Why is just some change, even if not perfect, the worst alternative to doing nothing? Because of the other things that it does as well. And, you know, and listen, I would beg to differ that uh, you got to do something. Well, and, you know, if we could cause more harm, and I believe that this border bill would cause more harm if we were to enact it, then it would do us good. You know, I'm, I'm a healthcare professional, and, and as a consultant mm. in nursing homes, I was always asked a question, asking the question, does the benefit outweigh the risk? And in this case, I don't think the benefit outweighs the risk of all the other things that this brings in with it. Hmm. To what extent, Congressman, is Donald Trump running the House right now. This seemed to be a Republican priority until he told the Speaker that it was DOA. No, it, it, that, that doesn't have anything to do with it. I represent my constituents. I vote according to what my constituents feel and the way that I'm representing them, as I hope every other member of Congress does. So to think mm -hmm. that, oh, this is the heavy mm -hmm. hand of Donald Trump, I think is erroneous. Well, as we've discussed, Congressman, you may not even have a chance to vote either way on this package if it is indeed dead on arrival in the House and never will make it to the floor. But you may have a chance today to vote as to whether or not to impeach 
The Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, your colleague, Congressman McClintock, today said that he is a no vote on that. And his reasoning he put in a memo today, he said the problem is that they failed to identify an impeachable crime that Mayorkas committed. He says this is a stretch and distortion of the Constitution in order to hold the administration accountable for what he says is stretching and distorting the law. Congressman, from your perspective, what high crimes or misdemeanors has the Homeland Security committed? Look, Mayorkas needs to go, and I'm surprised he's lasted this long. It's bad enough the number of illegal immigrants who are coming across that border. But in my opinion, that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is the drugs coming across that border, the fentanyl coming across that border, killing our citizens. 200 people every day in this country dying as a result of fentanyl poisoning. That, to me, is the reason why he should be impeached. That, to me, is why I'm going to vote to impeach him. He should be ashamed. And he should resign without us having to impeach him. Is that because of Alejandro Mayorkas, though, or Joe Biden, Congressman? I think that's the question people have. He's, his job is to carry out the policy of the president, right? Well, and, and, you know, we're very fortunate in the House to have a constitutional lawyer as our speaker. And, and, and look, our lawyers have looked over this and they've studied this and they have advised us that our constitution gives the secretary in this situation authority to to make changes here if he's listening to joe biden then joe biden should go down with him but i'm telling you Marcus has got to go if it's bad enough with the number of illegal immigrants that are coming across that border but the drugs that are infesting every community in america killing 200 people every day if we had a plane crashing that killed 200 people we'd stop every airplane that was flying in this country until we figured out what was going wrong yet we lose 200 people every day to fentanyl poisoning and we do nothing or this administration does nothing Well, Congressman, uh, it sounds like you're a no on the border. You're a yes on impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. Where are you on a potential government shutdown in a month? Are you worried that we're going to have to do this all over again? Well, my hope is that we can avoid a shutdown. And and I have voted for the CRs in the past, and um, I hope we don't have another short-term CR. I hope this is the situation, finally, where we can get this done and pass a budget for the year. But I will tell you, that a shutdown is not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen would be for us to continue with this outlandish spending that has got us $34 trillion in debt. You know, we're spending more money right now in the United States of America. We're spending money more faster than the speed of light. We spend $200,000 every second. The speed of light is only 186 miles per second. Buddy Carter, we thank you for the time, sir. The congressman uh, from Georgia with us. Kaylee, fascinating to, to speak with someone who's preparing to deliver these votes because the mood has changed so many times, it's hard to tell where they're going here. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We just heard from the president of the United States on the border deal that he uh, has agreed to with Senate negotiators. That seems like it may very well be dead in the Senate, not just dead on arrival in the House, the president yeah. making the case that there are many strict measures in there, the strictest we have seen proposed potentially in decades. And yet ultimately, because in his words, former President Trump wants to be able to weaponize this issue rather mm-hmm. than solve it, he does not think that it will perhaps cross the finish line for that reason. Well, yeah, look, we've talked about sticking points a lot when it came to issues like parole and redefining asylum. These were the things that we weren't supposed to be able to figure out, and they actually did. You might not like the bill, but there are compromises on both of those along uh, with uh, enhanced rights uh, to to send undocumented immigrants back to their home countries. So you wonder if it's as simple as Donald Trump leaning on this, Kaylee, because this would have been considered a breakthrough, it seems like, in any other political world. Yes, but we know that the political climate can change very, very quickly from one administration to the next, even one month to the next, because that's how it goes here You know, It was Rick Davis who said it was Iowa. When we were talking about Donald Trump flooring everybody in Iowa, that was the moment that the mood music changed. Yeah, well, as we talk about how things have changed to the current administration from the former administration, we want to bring now someone who formerly served under that administration. Former Ambassador Chris Lando is with us. He served as the U.S. ambassador to Mexico during the Trump administration from 2019 to 2021. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today. As we just heard President Biden outline, there are many potentially substantive policy changes here. He said that if this were to actually become law today, the border would be shut down because there would be enough crossings happening that it would require that. There are changes here to asylum and parole. Is it not enough? Why is it not enough? Uh, Thank you, Kaylee and Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience today. I mean, this bill is a travesty. I have to say that this is basically the Biden re-election bill. I mean, to now after three years- What parts specifically? uh, Specifically, the parts- that uh, first of all give a lot, the president a lot of discretion in terms of even this emergency thing the president can override that emergency provision it provides it actually locks in um uh, th- th- these provisions where the, it looks to me like the president can't close the border unless there is 4000 people a day which is 1.4 million a year i mean let's just take a step back in the trump administration the border was under control. All these uh, EO executive orders and regulations that Biden made opened the border and incentivized people to come here in numbers like we've never seen in our history. Give me a break. Now, in the election year, after three years and maybe 10 to 12 million people having come in illegally, now the president says he takes this seriously. I mean, he has authority. In fact, he has the obligation to detain people who are in their country illegally. He hasn't done that. I mean, this this bill is, uh, you know, something that basically codifies Biden's disregard of the law and actually waters down current immigration law in a lot of ways. I mean, the president has the obligation, again, not to let any of these people in. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's a thousand a day. It's like you give a guard the responsibility, the duty to guard your house and say, nobody can come in illegally to my house. 
The guard then decides to throw a massive party uh, in the house and invite all kinds of people in. And then you have pass a bill saying, well, okay, just keep the decibel levels down to these levels and do this and that. I mean, no, the president had all the authority he needed to do this. Asylum reform is a separate kettle of fish that can be done in a regulatory uh, capacity by the president saying, if you transit through a third country where you can get asylum from the or the danger you claim to face, you can't claim asylum in the States. I mean, yeah. this is all stuff. Well, so be Mr. Shut Ambassador, down it sounds people. to me, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. It sounds, listening to you, like this is an issue of, of maybe timing or, or maybe like there was, this was a big waste of time to begin with. HR2 passed the House. It sounds like that might be a little bit more in line with what you're looking for, but we need Democrats to vote on this. So was, was there never a legislative answer? You're saying this should be handled by the president through executive order. Am I right? Yeah, I think, you know, frankly, a lot of the problem uh, can be handled by the president through executive order, particularly uh, shutting down the asylum loophole, because the asylum provisions have basically swallowed up all of immigration law. Everybody knows this. I mean, that 99 percent But they defined the asylum. We didn't think we'd ever see that. So is, is that not a, a good part of this proposal? This is something that a couple of months ago we were told would never happen. But you don't need a legislative fix for asylum. The current asylum law is actually fine. It says you have to have a reasonable fear of persecution based on certain narrow criteria. It's all the regulatory framework that's been put on top of that and the procedures that allow people to come in here, say some magic words, and then be basically told, okay, see you in 10 years at your asylum hearing. I mean, that can't possibly be the way it works because that's a magnet for people to make bogus asylum claims that's what we have now i mean so they, they people are coming up at the border and surrendering themselves to make asylum claims i'd like to ask you while we have just a, a minute or two left with you mr former ambassador knowing that you aren't just the former ambassador to mexico but also an attorney. We separately got news related to former President Trump today from the appeals court here in Washington that he is not, despite his claims to the contrary, immune from prosecution in the case brought by Jack Smith as a former president. They say that he is not now former President Trump. He is citizen Trump and therefore will be treated accordingly. What do you make of this ruling? There's two issues here. The first is whether former presidents have any immunity at all for any kinds of action, for a drone strike they may order, for any kind of thing. The, the district court said no, that basically any president can be put on criminal trial by anybody for anything that they did during their administration. The appeals court had a narrower ruling. What they said is that um, the, the specific indictments against President Trump just are uh, not things that are within the president's purview uh, at all for his official actions. I think, frankly, that seems like a very uh, sketchy decision for me, that the appeals court, as a matter of law, would say that all of the uh, allegations in the indictments are not even plausibly in the president's purview. Uh, so I think this is a very flawed decision from my quick look at it. It's a 57-page opinion. It just came down this morning. Yeah. But it, it seems to me a very aggressive opinion, uh, uh, limiting presidential immunity. Mr. Ambassador, we appreciate your joining us. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.